0: Welcome to the Afikra podcast. My name is Mikey Mhenna. Today on this series, I'm joined by Sumeya Valley, who is a South African architect, founder and director of the Johannesburg-based collaborative architectural studio, Counterspace. In 2020, Sumeya was the youngest architect to be commissioned to design the Serpentine Pavilion, and was featured as the only architect on Time's 100 Emerging Leaders Who Are Shaping the Future. Today, we're going to be talking about her work as Artistic Director for the first Islamic Arts Biennale in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, which ran from January until May of 2023. I had the privilege of attending the opening of that Biennale, and so I'm extremely excited to speak to you. Sumeya, welcome to Africa.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so honored and delighted to hear that you came to the opening and that you visited the Biennale. we're in June now, and I must say I'm feeling really homesick uh, for Jeddah, but also for the Biennale. So every time I meet anyone who's been, I feel it somehow a shared connection. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah, it was a privilege to be there. It was like really um, uh, an experience to behold. Um, so I want to go back to a little bit um, setting the scene for your perspective. So you were um, you know, you're South African, um, you are a Muslim South African. If, if I spoke to you as a younger architectural student and I said that, hey, you are going to be um, the artistic director of an Islamic arts biennale um, and serve as, in a curatorial role, um, what part of that sentence would you most uh, likely not believe? <laughs>
1: um Well, I think I came from, I'm from a very small town in South Africa. Um, It's a previously apartheid township called Lodium, and it was designated under apartheid as Indians only. Um, And I lived in a very small community. I grew up, um, you know, in South Africa and Uh, in a very, very close-knit community. a kind of small-town world. But having said that, I also grew up um, on the precipice of apartheid, uh, being at its end and at its death. And really in this moment when anything was possible, anything felt possible, we were becoming the Rainbow Nation, as Archbishop Desmond Tutu coined it. And Mandela was really five days before I was born. So I think just growing up in and around that energy and excitement of anything being possible um, is something that I, I carried with me, I hope, in my life. Despite where I'm from and despite what I saw uh, growing up, we still had this persistent optimism about um, anything being possible. I also uh, grew, I mean, when uh, you're asking about a younger architect and when I was a young architect and and graduating, it was really around the time when the Fees Must Fall movement, which started in South Africa and then moved across the world, really came to uh, just to start. And I think there's something about this juxtaposition of the optimism of being part of and growing up in the Rainbow Nation, but also this profound realization and understanding that things have not changed enough and that we need to somehow invent and imagine new and different worlds. I've always carried that responsibility with me um, as a South African, and so I don't know if the statement it would have been believable or not believable. I think everything is possible, and everything is believable and no matter where we come from, no matter who we are, we should really imagine to the extent of our imagination. I don't believe that anything is impossible um and i yeah. and and somehow i i I never did I never do. I think some of the things I've worked on, I certainly feel like i worked very hard to rise to the challenge and I hope I've been able to honor these responsibilities and opportunities. Um, and I feel very, very lucky and grateful, but I also believe firmly and strongly uh, that anything is possible and we should really keep an open mind um, to, to to what is possible for us to be.
0: Yeah. No, I, I love that. Um... Can you tell me a little bit about how you became first involved in in the Islamic Biennale um, and sort of what your relationship was with the, the theme of Awal Bayt and how that sort of emerged?
1: Hmm. Um, so I first became involved in the Biennale very early on in the project uh, when the Diriyah Biennale Foundation was first setting up the Islamic Biennale. Um they had started to work with Fultonari at that point, and they were working on the contemporary Biennale at that time. Um, and they then started to set up the Islamic Biennale. And I was uh, on a call, a Zoom call during COVID with uh, Hans Ulrich Obrist uh, from the Serpentine, and it was a year before the Serpentine Pavilion opened. Um, of course, the pavilion was, was delayed due to COVID. And we were talking, it was Ramadan and I was talking about the practice of Ramadan and the practice of the rituals around fasting without community or with the micro community of my family uh, where I was spending lockdown, but without being able to do so much of what we do during Ramadan in the community that I grew up in and where I spent most of the Ramadans of my life, apart from the last year have been and Jipta. Um And uh, one of the cultural advisors and strategists to the Biennale was on the call and she heard this and she reached out and asked to speak to me. And we started a conversation and I met the rest of the team uh, on the Diriyah Biennale Foundation site and joined the team like that very early on. At that point, we didn't yet have a site for the Biennale, and I feel very lucky and grateful to have been proxy and proximate to the processes of, you know, really seeing this project grow from a tiny seed and and, and an incredible idea into into what it is now. The theme of Owl Bait, um, I think uh, when I thought about conceptualizing it, uh we we were really aware of um the the presence and the prominence that Jeddah holds and that the hijab more broadly holds for the Muslim world and I um have not had a professional experience with Saudi Arabia until this point in my life. I have visited Alhamdulillah for Hajjan for Umrah several times. Uh, But my relationship with the kingdom is deeply spiritual. And I wanted to somehow be able to honor that, that experience that all Muslims have, that this place, the Awalbeit, the first house is in Makkah, but somehow it's in the hearts and minds of all Muslims, um, regardless of where we are, every time we stand up and face in, in prayer, every time we stand up and face qibla, we're connected to the oval bait, and it is also our oval bait. It's kind of suspended in geography in that it belongs to the entire world. At the same time, on a physical level, because the entire world has seen the movement, uh, sorry, because this part of the world has seen the movement of the entire world, Um, because of the pilgrimage it somehow transmitted its culture to regions across the world and it has absorbed in its own culture cultures from around the world so somehow there's a resonance with all the parts of the world that the islamic world touches incredibly diverse but in spirit i think there's so much that we share there are concepts of generosity that we always talk about, uh, feelings of hospitality. There's somehow an ethos that's connected um, to the Owl Bait that we all carry with us in our cultural lives. And those two ideas we really wanted to think about. Um, and so this idea of the Owl Bait was born and I really wanted it to feel somehow like a coming home for anyone who visited the Biennale that these were things and these were experiences and encounters that people would feel resonated with them um and i also want i also somehow felt like it was important to touch on very primordial things inside all of us that we know and resonate with as being of the muslim world um regardless yeah. if someone is practicing or not or if they have even even people who have visited but also for Someone who might not be Muslim, um, their encounter with this uh, version or that vision, let's say, of Islam that is common to all of us and resonant with our daily practices. I wanted to be able to somehow express that. And I think there was also a strong um, impetus from the Diriyah Bin Ali Foundation side, because this is the first edition, they wanted to focus on the significance of Mecca and Medina in all of our lives, and, and and I really started to think about how these two holy sites are physically located in the kingdom, but somehow they belong to the entire world.
0: So I wanna pick up on your personal relationship to, to Jeddah. I've heard you talk in interviews about your first trip to the very Hajj terminal that ended up being the site of the Biennale. Um, when you were Mm -hmm. 14. What do you remember about that trip and how did your memory of that place um, match up and overlay with how you experienced it today?
1: Um, I I remember everything about the trip. It was a really, really profound time uh, to perform Hajj with with my family. My grandmother was also on that trip with us and In South Africa, I lived for a time uh, right before I started to live between South Africa and and London with with my grandmother alone, just her and I. And um, she is a very larger than life figure. And she certainly was when I lived with her. And so many of my um, memories of being on the Hajj are tied to you know, seeing it also through the eyes of my grandmother mm-hmm. and having this larger than life personality on this journey with us. Um, so that's something, you know, that uh, somehow has maintained a connection because her as a, the matriarch of our family and this figure in my life um, is very central. And also at the time when I performed her, she was there with us. So 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 that's something that's, Somehow, I think we are all going to hold dear to us forever. Um, I I think that the encounter that I had at that time was completely different, but also now that I look back at it, there's so much overlap and similarity and themes that we work to bring out in the Biennale. Lakes. My encounter with the kingdom was only spiritual at that time. Um, I, I, I think we don't... Uh, people who perform Hajj and Umrah from other countries in the world, especially outside of the Khalid, really see um, Saudi Arabia as completely spiritual only. I, I somehow think that you know we don't imagine the other cultural aspects of life that occur in and out, and outside of of the region. Okay. Um, and uh, so, you know, I think understanding it as the spiritual center. On the one hand is something that we wanted to carry into the Biennale. The experience that you described of visiting the site for the first time professionally and being flooded with memories of being there as a 14-year-old Haji, I think the emotion of understanding that we have arrived in this incredible place, that we're about to undertake this once-in-a-lifetime journey. That feeling is something we wanted to bring to the Biennale. This, this feeling of spirituality, of connectedness, of arriving and coming home, um, of being joined, um, with the larger Ummah and, and really the, the weight and the significance of that. And also seeing people from around the world. Um, I often talk about seeing food from around the world, hearing sounds and accents and languages from around the world, seeing people of all different color, race, ethnicity and creed and understanding that we're so different and coming from so many diverse places, but we're connected in this common uh, mission and this, this, this common goal of, of performing this Hajj. That's something we really wanted to, to somehow bring to the Biennale. And I think the experience of Hajj is very much about that. And my experience of the kingdom is also intertwined with that, with always encountering, um, people from around the world over the years from many of my trips. There are several people who I met over time in in Makkah and Medina that I still keep in touch with and I'm yeah. still connected to. Um, and and there is that special sense of encounter from my parents' first hajj. Their friends are still very connected to our family. And I think there's this special connection where, um, you know, I, I don't know what the term is in Gujarati. I think my mom calls it hajiban or hajibai, like this idea that you're connected to someone. It's it's almost like they're your brother or your sister because yeah. you performed the hajj together.
0: It's like both and, blood and that brothers. Feeling,
1: exactly. And that feeling of connectedness with others in community uh, through the act of common purpose and common ritual um, is really something that we wanted to bring about.
0: Mm. Can you tell me a little bit? So, um, this site for people who are listening and, um, don't know what the site of the, um, that this Hajj terminal was. Um, so if you can tell us a little bit about the intended purpose in 1983, when it was designed, um, and how that the history of that terminal and how it was when you as a team, um, you and the rest of the team decided, okay, this is actually going to be the site of this, essentially this amazing art exhibition. So if mm-hmm. you can give us you know a little bit of the history. I'd be super, super curious, um, especially also because you experienced it in all these different incarnations as well.
1: Mm. Yes, um, I also several times for Umrah I have landed at the terminal as well, and and each time I think um, that memory of, of of the Hajj is really present, but of course then it starts to become overlaid with all these experiences of spirituality. So um the the terminal was designed in the late seventies by Skidmore Owings and Merrill um, and was open in in the early eighties and it was intended to be and still functions as the terminal that pilgrims land in when they come on Hajj and also sometimes on Umrah. And um it is uh, it, it's been recognized for its architectural prowess several times over. I'm, I'm an architect first and foremost by, pre- by profession and also um, in my daily life and practice. It's, uh, so, so I think for me, there is also an added appreciation for how different this kind of architecture is compared to airport architecture. Um, it has functional airport terminal, terminal buildings, but those are underneath of this infinite tented canopy. And the tented canopy is designed specifically for people to gather under, different to the way that airports are usually designed, where they're designed for people to wait in and then consume or, or buy products and produce this airport is not really designed like that there's not much that one can buy apart from amenities and necessities and really people do wait there for very long periods of time sometimes uh, you, you know 12 14 hours a day at the longest and um and and really you see when when you experience the terminal as someone who's coming on pilgrimage, that you're a part of all these communities who are gathering to perform the pilgrimage. And that sense of this infinite tented canopy with this infinite community of people who are gathered underneath it is very, very present and it is felt in the architecture. Um, And the, site that we have is actually across the road from the functional terminal building. So when it was originally designed, this was an area that was earmarked for expansion, uh, but it was never expanded upon and built until now. And I think it's really a testament to the vision of the Diria Biennale Foundation that they recognized the power of the site as well as a permanent site for the Biennale. Of course, we all felt that um, you know, understanding the place that this site has in the hearts and the minds of Muslims is incredible. Knowing that it has such significance in our imaginations and our aspirations uh, for people who haven't been there, and in our memories for people who have been there, understanding that significance and that level of connection, I think is is incredible to to be able to work with.
0: Yeah. I want to talk about the publics that this project was addressing because they're, they're, they layer on each other and they're sort of different. And I'm curious how, as a team, you approach engaging with these various publics. And so some of them are um, the local Jadawi public. Some of them are the broader uh, Saudi Arabian and Khaliji public. Um, some of them are the, just the global people who are interested in the art world. Um, Mm. and then there's the sort of Muslim and non-Muslim publics. Um, Mm. I'm sure there were intentional discussions to think about what are we trying to achieve here? Who are we speaking to and what are we trying to say and who are we listening to? Um, can you walk me through sort of what that thinking was like and what the results were as well?
1: Yeah. Well, first and foremost, and this is the first edition, I kept thinking this Biennale is injured death. and this PNLA needs to honor the people of Jeddah. And in that microcosm of Jeddah, really the entire world is reflected, as I said, because of the pilgrimage and because of the amount of movement it's witnessed. It really has embodied in its own culture all of our cultures and all of our identities. And um, I think uh, that that for me was the kind of first and primary audience that we wanted to think about. I really wanted to think uh, in terms of reflecting this Jadawi audience that also will be able to resonate with everybody because somehow everyone is connected to that. Mm-hmm. And in the theme, um, the first part of the journey, Qibla, is about the daily salah and it moves up in scale. We start with the Adhan, and we enter into the space with the work of Joe Nami, where he's choreographed the sound of 18 different calls to prayer from around the world, from Japan, from Detroit, from South Africa, from places where one wouldn't necessarily expect the Adhan to be called. A parking garage, um, uh, you know, um, a gas station, et etc. et cetera. And we hear this call, as he describes it, as a cosmic breath, because every second of the day, the call to prayer is being called somewhere on earth. And we see that in relation to these projected images taken by Nura al-Isa from underneath her um, abaya during pilgrimage. And and there we see depicted uh, the Kaaba and the center, this magnetic center of the Islamic world. And I think From that introduction, we really understand the Qibla section and and, uh, the intent in in this Qibla section is really to understand that spiritually um, there are things that are universal that connect us. And this act of daily prayer, as it moves in scales from the vibrational scale of the sound of the call to prayer, and you know, the, the scale of the atom, then up in scale to the scale of the body and the limbs and how we purify ourselves before the Salah, how we wash our bodies. To then the scale of the body and prayer, the body in gathering, um, and gathering, many people coming together in, in Jamaah And up to the scale of infinity, that every time we stand up in prayer, past, present and future, we're connected with people who do the same, as I said. And, and this really is experienced in this white on white rule. Yeah. Uh, where we have works by Nasir al-Salim and um, Ayman Yusri in in conversation with a door that was on the Kaaba itself. And in this experience, we're touching on the universality of Islam, that is something that can relate to anyone who is Muslim, something that really allows us, or I hope, asks us to look at and think about the philosophies behind each of these things that we do every day or that we're taught to do every day. And for people who encounter these things from the outside, it's also offering a kind of deeper philosophy about what these practices give and how generative they can be. Um, and then on the, uh, in the outdoor section, which is titled Hijra or Migration, I think there, again, we really are thinking about the diversity of the Muslim world and reflected in the installations. There's a lot more specificity around uh, in language, so around how different communities practice. For example, there is um the... The prototype for a reassembled mosque designed by Yasmin Lari that's in bamboo and was made with artisans from Pakistan for a post earthquake or post disaster zone um, and that is very much in a vernacular and a local language to her. There is no uh, minaret, there is no dome um and and the and the structure is really in in that vernacular. but again, the principles of gathering that we can identify in there are universal. And they've also hybridized as people have moved. Um, The same for, for example, Lubna Chowdhury's Endless Iftar, which draws on rituals of eating and gathering from around the Muslim world. So the outdoor section really celebrates um, all the infrastructures of gathering and infrastructures of community that are common to all of us. But in the way that they are expressed, the language of the works is kind of specific and comes from different communities and different places. Um, and I think there's something about that. And uh, even if I think about the indoor works, for example, Kamrazaman Shadeen's woven jute work from Bangladesh or Mubarak Bushishi's ceramic work from Morocco, there's something in the craft that speaks to a place, but in the ethos that's embodied in the work, I think it's relatable across place and across face and across culture somehow but it is i think a very delicate balance um in terms of thinking about visitor experience and visitor audience as i said for me i thought a lot about the jeddah audience i also mm. thought and uh, in terms of internal conversation somehow be- previously when i've been asked about audiences for my work especially the works that are a bit more abstract I always think that what we're working to manifest and in this Biennale I really wanted to manifest and make manifest a definition for Islamic arts that is going to be a contribution to canon you know really starting from the place that the canon and the tradition of Islamic art that we have inherited is for the most part from 17th century France and has been framed Very often through colonial gazes, either through chronology or through geography or through style and aesthetic. But it's never really been looked at from the perspective of practice and, and also from the perspective of spirituality and from the perspective of how generative these philosophies are. And if we think about it like that, we can really make an offering to the creative world. Um, can I ask a question I about think, that
0: before you before yeah, you keep on going? Can yeah. I ask a question? So when Sorry, you talk I'm about
1: going
0: on forever. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm I'm captivated. But um, when you talk about that shift in perspective, right? And mm-hmm. being able to redefine and reframe what Islamic art is based off the practice of the practitioners, that I I I can sort of wrap my head around. What do you mean by it based off the spirituality and sort of the spiritual practice? Like, help me understand that a little more.
1: Um, so let me use one of the works as an example, any of the yeah. works as an example. Um, uh, if we, for example, think about Basma Filimbrand's work where she worked with the verses of Iodhan and the she translated them into wave frequencies. Um, and then each of those frequencies is translated into a vessel. So for example, if something has a high pitch, it's a specific form. And if it has a low pitch, it's a specific form. And when it comes together, we have this kind of breathing instrument that's made up of these vessels. When you walk to each up to each vessel, you hear a kind of breathing sound. And that is evocative of the breaths between um, the verses in the call. Uh, so for example, when we say, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, the, um, the, the modulation of our breath and what that looks like is a meditation for our bodies on a cellular level. And that is something that's asking us to reflect on these daily habits and to think about, um, just the wisdom in them. And I hope that the experience of the Biennale as a whole, when one walks through the narrative and through the experience, uh is very atmospheric and is very meditative. As I said, I'm also an architect and I really wanted to think about the unfolding of this as not a place where we look at things in glass boxes as a kind of exquisite construction, but where we understand the preservation of legacies as living, breathing, dynamic, mm, things, that we live with yeah. them every day and that's how they're carried across time. And that these things that we're doing every day actually come from a legacy. They have a home mm-hmm. in history and uh, we're taking them into the future. And I hope that we can ask ourselves about the value for these practices in our present and future. But really also, I think in the, fold, in the unfolding of the experience, we really wanted it to be Uh, very atmospheric, and uh, we wanted people to have a meditative experience through the Biennale. Um, So uh,
0: in the process of redefining what, or trying to redefine what Islamic art might be? um, I don't
1: know that I'm trying to redefine it. I hope that I am working to make a contribution to the canon. But I think that the platform is there for everybody to come in and and contribute something. Um,
0: okay. Yeah. I mean, this is a, this is like completely in line with the ethos of Africa. So I I I appreciate it tremendously. Um, I'm curious, what you learned specifically, and how your your um, understanding of what this canon is how it was shaped over the course of you working on the project, but also the course of the actual, um, the Biennale itself. The Biennale is supposed to be an an exchange of ideas, right? Um, so I'm curious how, how your understanding was shifted.
1: There were so many instincts Um, that I carry in my practice that were affirmed, I think. And I think those understandings, there's something deeply profound when one has a creative practice and you act on certain instincts. And then when you understand that those instincts are not incidental, they come from a deep place of who you are and your ancestry and something that's connected beyond yourselves um uh, that's something i really started to feel when i was working on the biennale in one of the first um experiences uh i'm just thinking uh, the first the first site visit we had uh, the same visit where we visited various sites uh, that that could have been the venue for the biennale um I was on a road trip with Mu'ad al-Ofi and Farida Husseini, who is the, Mu'ad al-Ofi is one of our artists, and Farida is the project director uh, from the Dir'iya Biennale Foundation side of the Biennale. We were on a road trip outside Medina, um, and Mu'ad is kind of native to that part of the land. And when it was time for Maghrib, we stopped on the side of the road and we came upon this incredible, just this incredible structure. All it was was a series of stones placed in the ground to form a square, and a niche that pointed towards Makkah. Just, just a boundary line was rock, and that for me was profound. I think standing in there was more and Farida with the setting sun. Um, with the winds of the desert and understanding that this practice, this idea that anywhere can be a place of prayer, but also that to worship um, and to live with worship and to live with these practices is incredibly simple. They don't require a large amount of infrastructure or anything fancy, uh, you know, the the a practice is made by people gathering and it's, it's, it's actually going back to those very, very simple practices of what brings us together um, uh, that, is, that is, you know, what we should all be remembering. And, and these rituals, these ways that we carry archive in intangible forms, in community and in ritual and in oral and oral and performed practice is something that my practice is very interested in. So that affirmation, And then that inspiration to take into the Biennale is something that for me was very profound. I learned so much um, about how incredibly connected our worlds are and our histories are, also by virtue of Islam. So how many political movements have been connected over time, um, if we think about Imam Abdullah Haroun from South Africa and the time that he spent in Jeddah, the influence that and and Mecca and the influence that that had on his life and his politics and the message that he carried in South Africa and um, his freedom fight um, and you know Malcolm X and the postcards that he he wrote from his time. traveling the world, uh, traveling the Islamic world, but also from the time of pilgrimage. Um, there are so many connections across across so many things that we don't originally imagine as connected. And, and that is, again, something that's affirming. But really, I learned so much through this process. Um, I also had the opportunity to work with my incredible curatorial colleagues, Dr. Sadar Rashid, who's an archaeologist from Saudi and Dr. Amna Dilbar and Dr. Julian Ravi, who are um, scholars in in Islamic history and um, Islamic art objects, and I feel like I have, you know, they've really opened my eyes and expanded my view to so so much. Um, and I also think that um, you know, seeing these seeing these objects now in proximity to contemporary art practices, I hope has opened up new understandings um, yeah. on both sides.
0: Okay, I'm going to ask you a random questions, Maya.
1: Yeah. Hey, please.
0: Okay. The the Biennale closes, okay? Mm-hmm. You go back to London or you go back to South Africa and you're yeah. now all of a sudden you have all these emails from presumably less interesting projects. <laughs>
1: <And> that- <laughs>
0: How do you sort of manage the, the like the letdown of, I mean, you're working on amazing projects all over the world, but I mean, it seems like this like tapped a specific chord for you that not every single project taps into. Yeah.
1: I think the projects I'm working on at the moment are incredibly rich and diverse and interesting. But it is true to say that any project as you finish it is, you know, it's like, people call it postpartum depression. Yeah. Um, it is, or, you know, it's often, I often think about it a little bit like a postmortem because one feels grief um, and and lost. And I think it's also important in that process to reflect on and remember and celebrate with the people who were part of the project, you know, just, just what we all did. Um, there is... I mean, I, there's a, it's almost inexplainable to work on something for almost three years and to have it run for four months, especially at that scale. And then to, to, you know, for it all to be over, it's almost impossible to, to emotionally comprehend it. It feels surreal, like it didn't happen. Um, and I think it's a little bit too soon to To think about uh, what happens next, I certainly feel, I, I certainly do feel an incredible sense of loss, but I think I'm also <clears throat> completely exhausted. And I haven't yet <laughs> felt the full, I haven't yet felt the full glow of what it means to not wor- be working on the project anymore. Um, I'm still very, thankfully, very connected to the team. We're talking about, uh, and of course, I won't be artistic director, I won't be curating it, but I will, you know, I, I'm still a part of the Biennale family. And there's a lot of talk about the next Biennale already and a lot of excitement. So it does feel like we're still continuing on and I'm navigating the strangeness of being isolated from the project. And also from being isolated from my life in Jeddah. It is summer in London. And that does mean that there are a lot of people visiting.
0: So I want to jump in and try to talk a little bit about some of the individual pieces. And I'm going to crudely describe them. And I want you to sort of tell me how they, like, how they became a part of the the show and Mm -hmm. what people should learn from some of them. So the first one that I remember, um, you, you kindly reminded me of the name civil architecture and it's like this amazing thing that you walk up the steps and you see, um, the, this, the shadow that's cast by the sun and how that sort of changes throughout the day. And the story that, that sort of tells about the terminal, but also about, you know, the universe. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about it? Yes. So that work is by civil architecture and it's entitled Sun Path Rajab to Shaban. It is designed specifically around the time um, of the Biennale Rajab to Shaban. And, um, it is really about this idea that uh, we're also connected to each other cosmically because our lives are orchestrated and ordered by cosmic events by the movement of the sun and the moon and how that relates to um, harvest and seasons and and planting and so on. And civil architecture was reflecting on how this was true and relevant um, for all of the prophets and in the different lifetimes of, of, of so many of them. And also they're asking us to reflect on um, this same sun that witnessed the, you know, the flood in the time of Nuh, um, these mega-scale cosmic and ecological events, and some of what we're facing today on the one hand, but then also the kind of rituals that bring us together. Um, So, for example, there's one of the dials um, for Ramadan is in the form of an iftar table. And they're reminding us that these rituals bring us together and we convene around them. The piece was also inaugurated um by one of our artists, Mohammed al who worked on choreographing a performance, um, Dreaming of a Sea of Rice, where he worked with um Uh, He worked with a group of people and they described the rituals of the harvest uh, in Al-Hassa, where Muhammad is from. Um, Really, really beautiful piece that uh, we worked with around the time of sunset. And, you know, there's also something about including the natural rhythms of the day or our days being centered around those and our bodies realigning with the cosmos and the cosmic uh, through the act of Salah, through our acts of fasting and so on. And um, we're, we're being asked to think about that at, at many scales in the Biennale in terms of what that means for our own bodies and our own relations to the world, but also how those very things bring us together as communities.
0: Amazing. Okay, cool. Let's keep on going. I, the second one I want to talk about is the one I will crudely describe as the megaphone one. What what was that one about?
1: So that's by Noura Sayah, who's an artist from uh, Bahrain. Noura's Palestinian. And uh, she worked with the Friday sermon, uh, Friday khutbah. And uh, Noura has an ongoing body of research work about the Friday sermons. Um, I've encountered them over the years and I've spoken with Nora over the years also about her her continued research um, on the Friday sermon. She presented the work previously in Venice and this time we really wanted to think about What we, what we wanted to say by bringing this work to a context where it will be in and of its community. And Noura was very interested in this idea of the three holy cities and three holy sites. And she wanted to re-include Palestine in the three holy sites and she wants us to be reminded that Palestine is a part of the three holy sites. It's been in recent years, um, she says, oh, very politicized and, and, and she wanted to remind us that it's a spiritual home and spiritual center. And so we hear excerpts from Friday sermons from Mecca and Medina and I think on an oral level this experience is something that anyone who's been Near a Friday sermon before'll we'll be resonant with them. It's also a very kind of urban experience you know you because you hear the collapsing and overlaying of many, many different sermons at once, um, which is something that that many of us are familiar with um, mm. but the messaging that's coming from them is one of unity, so we hear repeatedly that uh, you know she looked at many different time periods and all of the khutbahs are aligned in message. They're talking about love and peace and unity, this idea of home, so themes that are resonant with the Biennale's theme, and uh, and also the mention of Palestine um, in several sermons. So so we're really connected to this idea of unity across place and and unity in the ummah through uh, what is said in the Friday sermons. Her broader research is incredibly interesting and I encourage everybody to look at it. I think also your platform particularly will be very interested in it because she's working with uh, the idea of the Friday Sermon also as a an archive and a record of time. And, um, you know, they, they one can really tell something about the temperament of the time by listening to the sermon. Even actually, interestingly, the absence of the sermons um, tells us something. And Nora looked for the first sermons from the time of the occupation. And for two Fridays, there was no Friday sermon. And that in itself is also something that's interesting mm-hmm. for the record. This, this idea of the absence of archive also as archive. Um, well, yeah, I digress. Really beautiful yeah. work uh, about the message of love, unity, and spirituality across the holy sites. And I think on an oral level, something that is resonant was being in a city on a Friday at prayer time.
0: Beautiful. Okay. The other project, the next project I want to talk about was what I will describe the lamppost project that sway from side to side.
1: Yeah, that is a project by Wael Shoki. And uh, I had such an incredible time working with Wa'il. He is truly magic. Um, so, Wael, I mean, I had an incredible time working with everybody, I have to say. But Wael's was one of the more out there ideas to realize. Um, if anyone is familiar with Wa'il's work, Often his works are very fantastical. He works in the medium of stage set and stage setting. Um, And in this work, he wanted to pay homage to some of the beginnings of those imaginations. And he cites a lot of his experiences growing up as formative to the ways that he thinks and and the ways that he makes works. And it's really for us to think about the value and the imprints of collective and community experiences in our lives and in our memories and in and, and then in our imagination. And Wain is reflecting on this experience of performing hajj as a young person. And um he's describing this dreamlike state of being in Mustalifa. The year of uh, that there was also a locust plague. And so we have actual recordings from uh, the locusts um, at that time in Mosdalifa that we hear. And we see the Nampo swaying kind of rhythmically from side to side. It is a very meditative, mesmerizing experience. And it is also completely fantastical and uh, it, I think what I really wanted to capture that moment of, of fantasy and imagination and wonder that he felt as a young person and um, and yeah pay homage to the presence of that in his life and in his practice.
0: Amazing. Okay, two more to go. One of them is the piece that I will describe as the Floating Hats.
1: So that is uh, an incredible. <laughs> Do you like
0: my <laughs>
1: yeah, absolutely. Um, beautiful. So this is by the artist Haran Gunsali, who's from South Africa. And the hats are, uh, he's cast a thousand um, hats. They look like fabric. I don't know if you thought they were fabric when you walked up to them, um, because they're incredibly intricate, but they're actually cast hats. Oh and, no, I
0: absolutely thought they were fabric.
1: Yeah, it's they're they're absolutely intricate, aren't they? You can see every thread and every fold line. They're amazing. Wow. And the work is about um the funerary procession of someone named Imam Abdullah Harun. So Harun was born in prison uh at the end of apartheid South Africa. Um he was born to activist parents and he's named after Imam Abdullah Harun who was a religious and community leader. He was an Imam who had an incredible uh, presence in the community. All of the accounts of his life are described as him being the most kind person, the kindest to children and the elderly, um, and really, you know, the profound impact that he had on the community. He spent a lot of time in the kingdom, in Mecca and in Jeddah, and uh, the faith really had an important role in his life and also in his politics. And in South Africa, he also was an activist and he spoke up against the injustices of apartheid. And he was very sadly assassinated and killed. And actually, his trial is ongoing in South Africa at the moment, which you know makes this work all the more prescient. Uh in the Biennale. And there's it's accompanied by an audio work where we hear excerpts from the Imam's Friday sermons in Afrikaans. We also hear his daughters reading out letters that he wrote from prison. And we uh we hear excerpts from the current trial. And one excerpt um somebody sends, someone like this is killed unjustly by the apartheid police. Um, The day he dies, the night his body enters the earth, the night his ruh leaves his body, the earth shakes. And it's really for us to reflect on, um, you know, all of the worship we have in our lives. Our salah, our every action is a form of worship. And the contribution we make to our communities is also a form of worship. And these are the things that we leave behind after we die. That is our legacy. Um, so we see in the work a thousand cast hats, and this is a fraction of the imam's funeral procession, where 40,000 mourners attended the funeral. And, uh, you know, it's said that um, it was uh, people really wanted to pay their last respects and people really wanted to catch their last glimpse of him. And so they climbed up a mountain. So they had to also ascend in the installation. Um, and, and that is to also simulate the climbing of this mountain and, and, and how much everybody wanted to see. And it's under the seam in the Biennale of gathering. And we, we gather in light. We're reminded of that before uh, through a work by Ikhshan Adams that is also a kind of collective gathering and reminds us of people who have found resilience and resistance in their faith and came together in that. And then gathering also in death and the afterlife, which we're reminded of in Haroon's work.
0: Wow. Okay, the last one is the the fragments of the, the door. I think it's Dima Shruji.
1: yeah. So Dima's work is beautiful as well. All of them are incredible work. And Abiy and Ali were so lucky to have worked with such phenomenal artists. Um, And Dima's work is called Maintaining the Sacred. And Dima worked with studying the stained glass windows of Al-Aqsa Mosque, which have sadly been destroyed uh, in parts over the years. And she worked to reconstruct uh, those windows and um, she worked with stonemasons from Palestine as well as glass blowers from Palestine and part of the story of the work is also the bringing of the work from Palestine in parts to Jeddah and assembling it um, on site uh, with the care of of Dima and um, the artist production team that we had on site and in a way it's it's this community of piecing together this incredibly sacred uh, um, work that is somehow part of the identity and the history of all of us, and 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 um, recentering that in our lives.
0: Yeah. Okay, I want to wrap up with our four quick Q and A. The first one mm-hmm. is: What are you reading or watching these days?
1: Oh my god! Why why do we have to start there? I'm reading my emails. (laughs) I'm reading my emails
0: too. We should trade notes. We should have
1: a. I just, I just said that I am um, completely exhausted, but I just received in the post uh, my new copy of Brown Book by Ahmed and Rashid Ben Shabib, and I've really been enjoying reading that. I saw. I, I I started to read it at the same time that I saw the Zaha Hadid's Moonstone exhibition open at the Zaha Hadid Foundation, and there's so much overlap between the Gulf and Japan. So so I'm enjoying seeing these connections and, and reading about them. I'm also rereading Hadid by Arundhati Roy um, uh, for the second time. Um, and uh, really, really enjoy the way that she writes um, and enjoying that very much. Cool.
0: Who I've would you love to- I've been watching Pretend
1: It's a 50, um, which is uh, Scorsese's documentary about Fran Leberwitz, um, which mm-hmm. is really funny and very light and very enjoyable if you have any relation to New York City.
0: Yeah, she's so funny. Last time I was in New York, I uh, walked right by her. Um, uh, who do you love to shadow for a day, past or present? Sorry, say again. Who would you love to shadow for a day, past or present?
1: I mean, it would. I'm sure the shadowing would not be without difficulty, but I would be honored to shadow Steve Biko, Malcolm X, um, Nelson Mandela, for sure. I've recently been re-listening to Thabo Mbeki's I am an African speech and just have profound respect for so much contribution that he made um, in terms of, you know, the way that he thought about Pan-Africanism and the Pan-African Renaissance. Um, And he's thankfully still living, I'd love to shadow him for a day.
0: Amazing. What do you think people most misunderstand about your work?
1: Also a very obvious one, but I'd love to shout out with Batuta um, and um, Mansa Musa from Mali sure. and the Mud Masons of Jeanne, Um selfishly for my architectural purposes.
0: Mansa Musa, sounds like, next... that sounds like it would be a party, just showing up and I know. everyone's excited to see you. <laughs>
1: Completely. And also, I think a day um, with the time travel that we have now and his life, I wonder what that would be like. Amazing. Probably get to see a lot of interesting things. Sorry. Next no, no, question. no, it's okay.
0: Um, what do you think people most misunderstand about your work?
1: I think, I don't know, but... Somehow I feel like, in general, I still feel like my work is quite misunderstood because I do feel like um, sometimes if you're working towards manifesting ideas that are different in the process, you have to go through iterations where parts of the work are inarticulable, where you're still working on what the translation for them is. And I think of the audience for my work and somehow as our ancestors and our children. And I think if, you know, I'm, I'm continuously thinking about building from and working with archives and thinking about how different forms of archive translate into design form, things that are oral, oral, performed, um, not able to be held often in formal archives. I And I don't know that that always comes across, but I do feel like it is starting to feel more, I don't want to say coherent, it's the wrong word, more visible, let's say. Um, I think the intents of the work are starting to be more legible now. What okay, do you think is misunderstood about my work?
0: Oh, interesting. You know, we've done like 300 episodes or 400 episodes. No one has asked me to, ask, to answer the question on their behalf.
1: Um, Sorry. Let thanks.
0: me see. Um... I would say okay so not your work more broadly but I'll say um what I think is ripe for misunderstanding uh, about the the biennale itself um, is as as for somebody like me who flew who literally flew in to see this um mm-hmm. it does I could imagine that it would be easy to think that um that you are talking past the Zedda, the Zeddaway community. And that you're not actually like, um, that there isn't much thought, which is, that's what I'm saying it's a misunderstanding to engage specifically with the tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people who locally came to see it and are locally engaging. Mm-hmm. But I could imagine mm-hmm. that that's a, a recurring misunderstanding um, thought.
1: I mean, I think this is not a testament to me, all my work, but really the vision of the Biennale Foundation. Yeah. Um, there were over 600,000 visitors, which is a record for any Biennale, I think. And also, I think more than that, we didn't, the, 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 the majority of the audience was not an international art audience or a critical, uh, you know, thought leadership art audience that flew in to see the Biennale. It did really have a daily life. And, um, you know, we expected to have pilgrims come from across the road and to make this relationship with the airport terminal. But I didn't really, I I mean, I didn't, I don't know what I was expecting. I was, um, I was really moved to see it engaged with at such a local level. Yeah, Um, and to see it have such a such a real local life in the everyday of the city. To know, so many of my friends said that they brought their kids every weekend. Um, People told me that they came back with their grandparents, and I don't know that it's not what I expected, but I think, you know, it's 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 not normal for a Biennale, as far as I know.
0: It's normal. I would imagine that it's normal for an architect to feel these feelings though because an architect is quite often you know fully aware of a a pedestrian reclamation of your work to say like no no this is ours now this has nothing to do with you anymore
1: completely completely there is this incredible liberating moment as an architect i felt it I remember the night before the Serpentine Pavilion opened as well, where you feel like this is not mine anymore. It belongs to the world. Yeah. Um, and, and artists, I don't think always no... know how
0: to do that. Ar- architects do, I think.
1: <laughs> well, there's no greater honor, I think, than, than seeing the work lived in as an architect. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. So for my last question, what are you working on now? And... What should people expect of um, this alive, living place uh, in Jeddah? So two separate questions.
1: Um, I think people can expect the next edition to be entirely different to the first one, because I hope that whoever's coming in next is going to build on the definitions that we made, but also contribute their own definition to this now evolving canon of Islamic art. Um, I am currently working on, we just announced a new bridge project in Belgium. Uh, we were tasked um, to create a pedestrian bridge in the town of vils in Belgium. We'd never heard of it. And when we started to do research about the town, we came across this incredible figure whose name is Paul panda Fernanda. And because of how, because of Belfort's position on the waterways, it was one of the most active places that kept people from the Congo. And when we started to look into this research and read about banana, he was a complete genius. He studied horticulture in that town, and his research contributed to what the landscape of Belgium looks like. Uh, So there's this main bridge structure. And then there'll be ancillary boat structures that float along the riverbank and embed themselves along the riverbank and pollinate these previously industrial zones, also where so many bodies toiled um, and and worked as labor. And the idea is that these boats with, this, with these species will rewild and repollinate new ecologies. And it's been really interesting for me to understand that Any project, no matter how simple or humble the brief, can become a project that is about um, culture Uh, and that thinks about archives and histories that have been overlooked.
0: You're you're incredible. It's uh, really an honor for for me to have you on the series. I, I appreciate it tremendously.
1: Thank you so, so, so much for having me. I'm such a fan of your platform. And thank you so much for the work that you do for all of us and also the worlds that you're making possible. Your research is incredibly inspiring for me and for my practice.
0: Thanks so much. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you'd like to watch the full uncut version, go to youtube.com. There you can see the full video versions of these podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, go to hafiketa.com where you can learn about our Zoom events, our live events in 30 different chapters around the world, our social media presence, and our podcast and YouTube stuff.